We're starting a brand new series. It's based on the words and the works of Jesus as he's producing faith in people that we observe in the New Testament, as told us in the book of Luke. So I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles open to the book of Luke. You'll need to stick a finger there because we have one more text before we get in there that we're going to mention. In this series, we're going to see the same God who was at work in the lives of Abraham and Sarah. The last six weeks, we've been studying the lives of Abraham and Sarah, the messy journey of faith that God had them on, and they were learning about the Lord through. This same God is loving and leading people here that we'll examine the book of Luke in the first century, people with their own stories of messy faith. And this same God, here's the great truth, is at work right now. Like he's worked in you and in me, in our lives together. As he produces faith, that same kind of faith in us. So throughout the pages of God's word, there are people that are invited. People wired just like you that are invited. Invited to jump in and to take God at his word and to join him in this great adventure of faith. And it's often easy for us when we're thinking about a specific point of scripture to get lost in the woods. You know what I'm talking about? Like not be able to see the, the full scope, the forest, the whole thing of what God is doing and the, and the scope of his plan and how he works out his promises from like beginning of scriptures to the end of scriptures. And some of you who, um, who know the beauty of that plan and the depth of the gift of faith God has for us and this great story that he weaves together know that part of that faith story The big picture is told to us in Hebrews chapter 11. So I know you've got part of your finger in the book of Luke. I want you to turn now to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a phone, go ahead and do that. Get off the game that you're on right now and get into Hebrews chapter 11, which is really actually a fantastic portion. We're just going to look at a few verses that give us perspective about the big picture of what God has been doing, what he's doing in the life of Abram, Sarah, and Many of the Old Testament people. So Hebrews chapter 11, known to several of you as the faith chapter, just touches on a whole group of people who were men and women who learned the gift of faith from God and started to discover what that journey might be like. And for those of you who know that, it's helpful to understand that their journey of faith is connected to the people in the first century and is connected to your story as well. So, in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us some perspective of quite a few different people. And then it speaks about Abraham and Sarah's journey. And then it says this in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These perspective-giving words. These all died in faith. It's talking about the people that I've just mentioned. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Now, as I mentioned, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series the last six weeks thinking about the messy journey of faith for Abraham and Sarah and connecting it to our own experience of God 
walking us through deepening and stretching our own personal faith in him. And there's so many rich and challenging things to think about in their story that I want to encourage you to continue that journey. So what we do here on Sunday morning when I bring the word or when Pastor Nate does or another person is intended to whet your appetite, right? So that you would get in God's word yourself and you would be self-feeders and, and you would be nourishing yourself. Don't wait for someone to spoon feed you as you grow in your faith. Make sure that you're digging into God's word yourself, right? That's, that's the plan that you would be able, because God's spirit has that for you, to learn and grow each day of your faith. But as we think about this particular journey that they had and connected to the first century stories, what stands out at the end of Abraham and Sarah's life is that not all the things that were promised to them by God actually came true in their lifetime, did they? They saw a few things, but as Hebrews 11 says, it was doing something in them. They, they saw it from afar, God's plan, like from the distance. And something was awakened in them about God's purposes. What stands out about those promises for them is that though they didn't come fully to pass, they weren't fully fulfilled. They would be fulfilled, but they weren't fully fulfilled for Abraham and Sarah. They began. Abraham and Sarah were promised a land, and they started to discover the land that they were planted in and started to thrive there. They discovered the amazing blessing, this stunning blessing in their really old age of a son, Isaac, the, the beginning of the fulfillment. But Isaac wasn't the end of the fulfillment. Remember the most significant promise that God gave to them was that their lineage would be a blessing to people, all people over the earth and the world. That God was going to bring his blessing to all the people. And Isaac was just the first piece of that story that God was going to weave out. And the fulfillment, the real fulfillment of that story is going to be found in Scripture through, through Jesus, right? If you're ever in doubt, like at church, when someone asks you the question, just say Jesus, right? So, that, so that's exactly what the fulfillment was. It was of Christ who was going to come to fulfill this promise that they had. But Scripture here in Hebrews 11 says, they died in faith. Wouldn't that be a great way to be described at the end of your days? They died in faith. I have um, a man who was influential in my ministry life. I had gone to the church that he was a senior pastor of. I was just a you know, guy helping out on his staff. And um, he told me early on in the journey that uh, he had been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And that meant for him that he only had a couple years to live. At that point, they didn't have treatment that could extend. There was really no hope. The longest a person had ever lived at that point was four years. And he knew his days were short. And I can still recall him telling me, Ron, what I want most is just to be faithful at the end. Like not to do something so stupid that I would go off the rails, but just that I would be Faithful, I would be found like he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 11 here, that I would die in faith. That would be my story. And Abraham and Sarah's faith story, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, was that God had given them faith. God had given them faith and nurtured and stretched it throughout their lifetimes. And at the end, they were found there. And then the author of Hebrews points out that 
they died before all the promises were actually fulfilled and became reality. And that led them, because they were still looking forward to it, to this really great conclusion. It's pretty profound if you think about it. That is, there's a a homeland. There's this hunger for something more. I was at a memorial service yesterday, and I, I caught the whiff of that too. People who didn't know the Lord, but still wondering about what, what's missing? What's out there? You know, a lot of people, when they get to that place, they kind of fill in the blanks for God, and they think, oh, yeah, everyone's, you know, got, you know whatever their image of heaven is. But God gives us actually concrete promises that we might know that we could have life in him and life eternal through a relationship with Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise. I remember starting to learn this lesson at the, uh, the knee of my uncle, my Uncle Tom. Um, so I would go over as a young little kid to his house and uh, my aunt and uncle who were influential in my life. And um, I would sit down and he was like, so part of his legacy was he played in this old-time gospel quartet and uh, he played guitar. He was like from the South. And um, so he would sit me down and he would start singing hymns to me about heaven. And several of them I can still remember. One of them was, um, you might, some of you old-time believers might remember this, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. The treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. Do you know that song? And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. So it was a reminder to me. He was teaching me this lesson that, the lesson of Hebrews chapter 11, that I hunger for this holy homeland. And that's the journey of faith, right? That Hebrews chapter 11 is, is saying that that's what was going on inside a, this heavenly, homely homesickness that we have. And it leads us to this longing to be face-to-face with Jesus and know that he's got something really great beyond our imagination in store for us. And isn't it amazing at the end of that Hebrews 11 and verse 16 passage where it tells us that God's not ashamed of his children, even in the middle of their brokenness and their failings and their sinfulness. And we, we talked about Abraham and Sarah's experience, but he still loved them and treated us as his children. Isn't that good to know that he does that to us, that he treats us this very same way? What a great God we have. And that in his profound grace for us, he's preparing this place. And as for those saints in the Old Testament, described for us in Hebrews chapter 11, They just saw it from afar, but what they saw from afar became real in the New Testament, where history and the Bible tell us that God came in the flesh, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 12, that God was going to be a blessing to all people, and he had a message. That is the message of grace that we proclaim here, that Jesus came, and he came to proclaim his love, that God did not condemn the world, John three seventeen, but he came to love the world so that you might have relationship and place your faith in him. That's why he came, if you were wondering this morning, to birth that out in your life, to bring you to a place where you have right relationship with God through Jesus. He came as the promised fulfillment to bring a blessing to the world. And the faith accounts that we see in the New Testament, they're also messy, aren't they? 
They're filled with ups and downs and victories and failures and great confessions and heartbreaking betrayals. Yet these accounts, while they're connected to the stories of the Old Testament, they take on a different feel, don't they? Because the promise was there in the flesh. Jesus was right there present with people. And it's different. The living fulfillment of God's promise was right there, calling people to faith and making a way for eternal life for them. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at those specific stories in the book of Luke, leading up to our Easter celebration together, which is going to be great. And um, it's one of those moments, you know, where we can grab friends and invite them to hear the story. That particular Sunday, we're going to be talking about the two thieves on the cross and what, what God was doing in their life to move one of them, a broken man, to faith. So as we think about these stories, I have an agenda. I want you to be reading the book of Luke. Again, for yourself, just thinking about what God is doing in the course of people's faith. And the reason why I want you to be doing that is because I believe that God's word is the most effective tool to bring people to faith in Jesus that there is, that we have, that you have. And wouldn't it be great if you could invite a friend of yours from school or work, wherever you're at in the neighborhood, just invite him to, to read through the book of Luke and say, you know what, if you have any questions, just, just ask me. I might not have the answers, but just ask me about what questions, what you're learning about Jesus. Uh, a lot of people where you live, where I live, they have no background of Jesus. And if they've heard any of the stories, they might catch it a little bit in the book at the beginning of Luke, which is the Christmas story. And start to think about Christ and be able to come to you. And so I, I just would encourage you to think about that. So that's why we're using the tool of Luke. And now we're going to take the first story that we're going to think about in our series. In Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, 1 through 11. Which is a account that marks a pivotal beginning for Jesus' disciples. There are of course parallel accounts in um, the Gospels. And Matthew and Mark and John, they all tell stories. But Luke gives us some really fascinating details about what happens at this event right here in Luke 5. So Luke 1 and 2, here's the context of Scripture. It's always important to know the context when you're studying God's Word. Luke 1 and 2 tell the story of the birth of Christ. And at the end of chapter 2, the early years of Christ's life. And then in chapter 3, it describes John the Baptist's role in the story that God gives us of faith and a genealogy of Jesus. It's the reminder for the reader of Luke that God has had this sovereign story weaving it out throughout history of, of implanting and parting faith to people and that he was going to fulfill his promise in Genesis chapter 12. And chapter 4 tells us of the temptation of Jesus and then Jesus going to his hometown, proclaiming the gospel and being rejected by those people. And then a movement of people to come to listen to the words of God that were unique coming from the mouth of Jesus. And people were starting to come to listen. They wanted to know how this could be so different and how to step into relationship with God. And and now we find in the context of that happening, those events, these words, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word to us this morning. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, 
which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. And followed him. The first verse in that passage grabs our attention, doesn't it? Though Luke informs us in chapter 4 that um, the people of his hometown in Nazareth had rejected the message, there were a group of people that started hearing and listening and started coming to Jesus. And yeah, some of them were coming because they'd seen healing. But here in Luke chapter 5, it tells us that what was really moving people was that they were hearing the word of God. All of a sudden, God was speaking. It was very different than their other teachers, other people that they had heard, other voices in their lives. He was speaking God's word, which tells us something really vital about Jesus, that when Jesus speaks, his word is compelling. His word compels us. It it draws us, it moves us to a relationship with God. His message that Jesus was speaking wasn't simply different and interesting It was life-altering. And so people were coming in mass to cure it and was leading them into a real relationship with the living God. It had wakened people's hunger for God and hunger for what was implanted deep in their hearts for this homeland. And they wanted to know about it. Luke describes the crowds as pressing in on Jesus. They're not only excited to hear this rabbi, they're, they're compelled by the word of God. It's a phrase that Luke's uses repeatedly here in his gospel in chapters 3 and 8 and 11 and all throughout the book of Acts that Luke also wrote. And he uses that phrase, the word of God, to help us understand that there's power there. There's power in God's word unlike other things. And it's central to how a person comes to know and relate with God, to hear his voice. So if you want to hear the voice of God, you've got to get into God's word for you. You've got to be able to listen to it and engage with it and let it take shape and mold your life. So there's some people that are there for the healing thing, but most of them are here to listen to God. In our day, there's so many competing voices, aren't there? The voices in social media, um, all the loud voices competing for your attention, the pundits and the politicians and everybody else, It's sometimes so challenging to step away and listen to the one thing that is most significant for you to listen to amongst all the cacophony, to listen actually to the voice of God speaking to you. 
But that's the most important thing you can do this week, right? To, to listen how God is calling you and respond to that. Then Luke steps back and he pans out with the camera for us. So he tells us all these people are coming to hear the word of God and be transformed by it. And he pans out and we see these two boats and this group of fishermen. And they had just come back from a really disappointing time. They'd been working all night and struck out. These professional guys, they'd gone to their favorite place to go fishing and got nothing in their nets. And now they're on the beach and they're doing the work. They're cleaning up the nets, right? They're ready to go home and call it a day and try to sleep it off. And they're, they're just exhausted, I'm sure, and struggling with the disappointment that they're in the middle of. And as they're cleaning their nets on the shore, Jesus steps into Simon's boat, uninvited, and asks Simon to shove it out a little bit. He wants to be able to get away a little bit from the pressing crowds around him to be able to speak to those people in the back that can't hear him. And so he's, he's there, and maybe to use the acoustics of the water a little bit, and he's starting to teach, and he keeps teaching. And I'm sure there's multiple things going on in the minds of the disciples, like, man, okay, get it over with. Let's go home. And also the thought, wow, we're hearing something uniquely different. This is actually different kind of teaching, and they're compelled. They're leaning into it a little bit now. Their, their hearts are awakened by God's Spirit as, as Jesus speaks to them. And they're trying to, to actually catch what's going on there a bit. And the text tells us that Jesus speaks as he's sitting down in the boat. And let me pause the button here a little bit to give you perspective on these fishermen. So this is a story that's told us in the book of Luke, but the Gospel of John tells us some details that we don't have here about these guys. Most of them, if not all of them, had already had the touch of God in their life. And I know that because they had started to follow John the Baptist. Now, God, in his great plan to fulfill his purposes and his promise, had sent John the Baptist to preach a message of repentance, to to call people to turn away from their own stuff and turn toward God and do that humbly and, and do the 180 and embrace God in a relationship. And a group of them had started to do that. They started to follow John around. And it was preparing their lives for the coming of the Messiah, for, for Jesus into their lives, God's promised Savior. And these men, as they started to humble themselves and think about the message that God had for them, John started to speak in their lives, and he gave this message of preparation through repentance. And that's fascinating, I think, because... God started their journey by convicting them of their sin and leading them to repentance, which is a key component for every person's journey of faith. For every person who would be a woman, a man of faith, you have to allow God to begin to convict you of sin and to lead you to repentance. And by the way, that doesn't stop the moment you step into faith initially as a child of God. He continues to do that work that can be challenging us and hard to us. I remember as a high school kid, I was pretty, um, I was just discovering, actually, let me put it this way. I was just discovering how easy it is for me to be spiritually arrogant. How, how it, 
It's so, this slips in really easy. It's one of the weaknesses in my life that I can be spiritually proud. I came to the Lord as a young kid and I've, I've got a, I'm blessed with this long history of being in God's word and being um, gifted by him to grow and, uh, and I can become arrogant about it. It can be pr- uh, a matter of pride, spiritual pride for me. It's, t- it's ugly, right? I, I don't know how else to describe it. And um, a couple friends of mine came to me in high school, and I thought I had things wired. I was being a you know, pretty good kid. And a couple close friends to me, Russ and Brad, they came to me and just confronted me on it. And I, I did what, like, you know, what most arrogant people do. I became defensive and started to deny it, and I didn't want to hear it, and it hurt. And, um, I went away from that encounter, and I, I started to realize how wrong I was, how, how right they were, and how God needed to use that as a tool to keep on me, like keep humbling me and bringing me to repentance, brokenness before him, and turning around and acknowledging my brokenness and following him, right? Because that's what happens when God wants to birth out faith in us. He gets at those places in our lives that are broken and he keeps moving us toward himself and it, it begins and it continues through this journey of repentance, of sin. So that's the background of what God had been doing in the lives of these first disciples. It, it didn't just happen that they were on the beach that day. It happened because God was moving them sovereignly to this place. and Their, their hearts were already tender. And now they're hearing this message in their boat, even though they're really tired and want to go home. And now they're hearing this teacher. And now he's in their boat. And, and, uh, and now he's got this faith adventure in front of them. And he says, hey, I got a great idea. Let's go fishing. And they could have come up with all kinds of excuses, right, at that point. They could have. He invites them to go fishing, probably the last thing on their wish list, because they're, they're just finished cleaning up and ready to go home. And Peter responds, Master, we've been up all night and we caught nothing. Actually, the particular ancient word of Greek that Luke uses is a unique one, only found in Luke's gospel for master. It's the word commander or boss. He's telling the Lord, Jesus, okay, as hard as this is for me, you're in charge. Have you ever done that with God? As hard as this is for me in the moment, you're in charge here. We've toiled all night, caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. He could have said, you know what? We've worked all night long. I'm tired. Go ahead and use the boat. Knock yourself out. I'm going to stay on the shore here and go home and get some sleep. Listen, Jesus, you know what? You're really great at the teaching and the healing thing, but you know what? We're the professional fishermen. You know what? We're not catching anything. Or he could have said, you don't even know this area of Sea of Galilee. Like, the best fishing is where we were, our honey hole. And the best fishing happens at night. It doesn't happen now. Or he could have said, you know what? You were the one that brought all these crowds around and scared the fish out. All right, so what are, you, what are we doing here? But none of those excuses he voices. None of them. He just says yes to Jesus. Now, the excuses might have been swirling around in his mind as they are to us sometimes, but he says yes. And while as a Middle Eastern man, he may have been trying to save, trying to save face, his own face and the face of Jesus, 
I believe what Peter did here is what Jesus asked. Because Jesus wasn't planting faith into Peter. Jesus was the initiator here. And he's going to be implanting faith into Peter's life, just as he implanted it into Abraham and Sarah. And Jesus asked, and Peter says yes. And sometimes it's as simple as that, right? Sometimes God asks, and we just need to say, okay. I might not feel like it. I might have all these excuses in my life. But sometimes I just have to say yes to that invitation. I think one of the worst excuses for not doing what God wants us to do at times can be our past failures. The guys could have said, you know what, we just struck out. We don't want to go out again. But Peter and the boys had fished all night with no results, but they say yes, and the boats go out. Regardless of their misgiving or their feelings of frustration or their questions, they go out. And notice in the text that Simon even says, at your word, at your command. Jesus, you just tell me where you want the nets cast out, and we're going to do it. And so the men, they go out to the deep. The text says, they throw out their nets, and they find the biggest surprise, right? A moment of shock. Can you picture the shock on their faces and the smile on Jesus' face in this moment? The net's overflowing with fish. It's the best day they've ever had fishing, these professional fishermen. It's that moment where you want to capture on Facebook or Snapchat and give to all your friends. Can you imagine? Look at this, what we just did. You know, we're out here in the Sea of Galilee and it's just like it's overflowing. And the scripture says, and they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled with both boats so that they began to sink. It's the fisherman's dream, right? He can't imagine this moment, how great it is. And this is the miracle of abundance that God is so good at. Actually, throughout the word, we see God doing things exactly like this for us, for people like us. Think about the miracle of manna in the wilderness, Exodus 16, or the widow's meal and oil in 1 Kings chapter 17, or this unending supply of oil that's told to us in 2 Kings 4. Or Elisha's feeding of a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread in 2 Kings 4, the last part of that chapter. Or later in the Gospels, where Jesus feeds 5,000, they've got leftover food when they started with five loaves, two fish. Right? It's a God who gives generously, unexpectedly generously to us. And these abundance miracles, they've got some things in common, common characteristics. First, they demonstrate beyond question God's greatness and his sovereignty over all creation. And second, they're always about meeting and exceeding real human needs. God doesn't do random things. They're always intentional. They're about meeting needs, and that's what God does here specifically. And they impart faith to us. The abundance miracles, they impart faith to us. Immediately, God implants more faith into Simon's heart. He sees the fish they're gathering now. All both boats are about ready to sink. Can you picture it in your mind? And what does Simon do? And he recognizes that he is in the presence of something unique that he's never experienced in his life. He's, he's undone. And he gets down on his knees in the middle of all those fish. He just lays himself down. And he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. 
Now, if you know a bit about God's word about the Bible, you know that's not a unique event when someone comes face to face with the, the majesty and the holiness of God. All right, we see it in Exodus and in Judges and Isaiah. It's repeated throughout scripture, these amazing things where people come face to face with God and, and they get to this point. They feel just the majesty, the amazingness of God and feel in awe of that and their own personal brokenness. And they realize who God is and who they are and compared to him. And actually, that's a really great place to go, isn't it? And I want to invite you to go there this week. You can do it in a simple way to begin your day or maybe at the end of your day when, when it works best for your schedule. And just remind yourself who it is that you're following. And just say it out. God, you're far greater than I imagine. God, you're sovereign. God, you're the king. God, you're the one who's forgiven me. God, you're the one that's given me grace. God, you're the God of generosity. Just name it out to him, right? And do that exercise and understand it for yourself like, like Simon did in this moment, how great God is, right? It, it's so healthy for us to get to that place and remember who you are in his presence. I'm a wreck. I'm broken. I need you. In that moment of his brokenness, Jesus turns to Simon and he says, these are good words. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Literally, he says, stop being fearful. Jesus is calming those fears that have come in to Simon's life. Fears of, here is the Messiah in the boat with me. And I'm broken. How could he ever accept me? I am so I'm so unworthy of being in the same place with him. And Jesus speaks into that fear in the way that he consistently does. Yeah, just love the message of the gospel, right? That Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world so the world might know. He came so that you might experience his grace and his love, his acceptance in the middle of your brokenness. He doesn't accept your sin. He wants to forgive that and heal it and for you to move forward as a woman, as a man of faith. But he does accept and care for us and give us this great mission. He says, from now on, you'll be catching men. The wording in there in Luke is that you'll be catching them alive, right? Because we're, we have this message. It's true evangelism. It's not bringing dead people into this building. It's actually pouring out life into people as we proclaim God's goodness and his forgiveness and his healing and wholeness for us. And Jesus remarkably gives these guys a mission to jump in. Jump into this adventure of faith with me, guys. He calls them out, just like he called out Abraham and Sarah. And notice that the catch itself was not nearly as important as what it showed him about Jesus. The story, actually, here in Luke, I was reminded week that um, it doesn't give us the impression that actually they took the fish, they got them to shore and they, they skinned them and then they, you know, they took them to market. Like, this was the greatest day of their lives as fishermen. The greatest fish 
you know, catch that they had ever had and the greatest profit they could ever make. This was when they were really living large. They had it all, right? And they come in. What does the text say? They left it all and they followed him. They, they left what was most important to them to that point in their life and they followed Jesus into the unknown. They didn't know all what was going to happen to them. They had no idea, Right? But they left and they followed him. They took that step of faith. And that is exactly what scripture would call us to. To jump in. To leave the things that are most significant and important. And know that there is something, someone far greater than all your stuff. It's only stuff, right? That you have been accumulating. It's only stuff. It's only meager achievements compared to what God has for you in his homeland. He calls us, men and women, to the most important thing, to leave that stuff and to follow him without question, wholeheartedly. Can I lead you in a prayer of following, please? Let's pray together. Father, Implant that in our hearts uh, as individuals and as a church here, a family together, that we would embrace your call to follow. Follow wholeheartedly. We're just so humbled and grateful that you would call us and you would move us to be people into this um, great adventure of faith to jump in with you. Give us the trust and the courage to do that. The wisdom to simply say yes to you and follow. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.